0: star wars 7x7 bonus episode bonus extended episode even coming on the heels of george lucas's official announcement that he's seen the force awakens and the comments that he's made about it we take time to talk with bobby roberts from the epic podcast full of sith about lucas's comments and about the history of lucas's relationship to the force awakens and the sequel trilogy punch it (laughs) chewy Hi, I'm Amy Rackliff and of Sith, and you're listening to Star Wars 7x7, the only daily Star Wars podcast. Hey, Rebel Rouser. Welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Voivod, and this is officially the longest episode that we've ever done. We have done longer live stream video broadcasts from Star Wars Celebration, but this particular interview, this particular podcast, is going to even top out the one that we did with Albin Johnson for episode 501. This is an interview with Bobby Roberts, who has been a guest contributor, I guess as it were, to Full of Sith and was doing the Rumor Control series of podcasts for them, but he was also showing up as a guest on their podcast. It's mainly with Brian Young and Consetta Parker and Mike Pilot, and of course Amy Ratcliffe is part of that cast of characters too. As far as Bobby goes, this is sort of his swan song, I guess you could say. He's actually going to be departing Full of Sith at the end of the year to pursue other endeavors and yet still says that he will pop in from time to time into the Star Wars universe again. But I'm going to let you discover the reason why this podcast is happening when you listen to the interview with Bobby, but I will at least set up for you what this is all about. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know that I occasionally talk from time to time about How Lucas potentially doesn't necessarily understand that Star Wars doesn't belong to him anymore. It belongs to us as fans. And he has a very interesting relationship to the movies and to the fan base as well. And it's come out in a lot of different ways throughout the development of the Force Awakens in the sequel trilogy, and before that even, in the sale of Lucasfilm to Disney. And recently he's been appearing a lot in the media, talking about his relationship to the franchise and colorfully describing it as being like a divorce and, <laughs> and filling in that analogy with some uh, very caustic comments, I guess you could say. And I thought that it would be a really interesting thing to look at the history of Lucas's relationship to the sequel trilogy, even going back to the idea that he had planned nine movies all along in the first place. And as I mentioned, Bobby is the guy that I'm getting down with it about. Bobby on the website for Full of Sith, which is at fullofsith.com, describes himself as a semi professional smart aleck, and I'm changing that slightly because we are family friendly here at Star Wars 7x7, a freelance critic and columnist, and murderer of pop culture memories. <laughs> very nice very uh, simple and straightforward very very uh, hooked on the brevity thing and is a correspondent for the Portland Mercury which is an alt paper and a successful one at that so without further ado let's jump in to the interview with Bobby Roberts and talk about George Lucas's complicated relationship with the sequel trilogy I am joined graciously and generously by Bobby Roberts from the awesome podcast Full of Sith. Bobby, how are you this evening?
1: How are you doing, Alan? Thank you so much uh, for having me on one of the finest Star Wars podcasts in the Star Wars podcast universe. The that, ever-growing, ever-expanding, big-bang podcast universe that is Star Wars.
0: It really is. Isn't it? <laughs> you know, I kept thinking that I was jumping in at a good time when I started last year. And, uh, yeah, it's just—it's amazing the proliferation of podcasts that have come out in this past year. It's astounding.
1: Well, and, and you're doing the smart thing, which is... Um, Finding a niche and sticking to it and being true to it. You're not, you know, jumping in and trying to do what a bunch of other shows are doing or not, you know, really covering the same ground that a bunch of other shows are covering. Like the idea of seven by seven is unique enough in and of itself that even if you were bad at this, which you are absolutely not. But even if you were bad at this, you would get a fairly significant listenership just because you're doing it correctly. So uh, I, I want to say congratulations to you uh, on having one of the uh, the few really unique Star Wars podcasts out there and also for, for doing it as well as you do.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to say. And <laughs> I got to say, when I was doing my initial research about jumping into this whole podcast world, there were – Three podcasts that I was looking at really kind of at, at the top of their game, one of them being the Force cast, of course, because they're, you know, the granddaddy of them oh, all. Yeah. And then Rebel Force Radio, because, uh, of course, you know, Jimmy Mac and uh, mm-hmm. um, oh, gosh, and his name just flew out of my head. Why the heck did that just happen? Jason Swank. Thank you. It is Jason Swank. Yes. OK. Hey. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I call R2 and 3PO, basically.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they, I guess, had been the Force cast before they took off and did theirs. And then the third one is full of Sith. And with, you know, the caliber of people in, you know, of course, present company included, that have been on that show, I mean, it's... It is second to none, really. I mean, with um, Amy and Brian being writers for StarWars.com and Consetta with, um, with her access and history with things. And, you know, that's not to give short shrift to, uh, to Mike or to you for that matter. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you and Force and Rebel, Radio, Rebel Force Radio set the bar for it for, um, for everything that I was doing. So it's been, it's been fantastic to listen to your shows and to learn from you guys and really awesome to be talking with you
1: this evening, too. Well thank you man and I hope the listeners aren't too embarrassed by the uh, the huge bear hugs we just gave each other <laughs> the long tender clinches we just held for so <laughs> so tenderly so long I li- I like that that's very cool thank you for saying that man and uh you are absolutely right to to compliment you know Mike and Brian uh and Amy and Consetta I often feel like uh, if there is a uh, A bit of a tarnish on the highly polished shine that is full of Sith. It's usually me in my mouth, which I feel sort of bad for because I was never intended to be like a a regular co-host on that show. I was always supposed to be like someone who showed up once a month and talked about what crazy rumors uh, were out there. And and as time went on uh, and I just kept talking and neither of the very nice people uh, on that show would tell me to shut up. I just sort of eventually (laughs) came. A regular co-host so uh but i will be leaving uh full of sith uh fairly shortly i'm going to be uh enjoying podcast retirement i've been doing it for over 10 years um, wow, wow. And, yeah and you know star wars is i think a good exit note to go out on it'll just be you know me and george hanging out in retirement <laughs> him enjoying a much higher stratus of retirement than i will be but still <laughs> I like I like the idea of spiritually me and George hanging out on the same couch, like you know, reading comics, playing video games, and every now and again we look up and there's some Star Wars on the screen, and we get to just enjoy it. We don't have to turn it into content or figure out how to make a really cool podcast out of it. We just get to be uh, fans, like all of our listeners, and so it's going to be a pretty cool transition. I'm I'm going to like getting old because I'm already grumpy, so it'd be nice to be old and grumpy by myself and sort of fulfill (laughs) the transition. Into uh, my future as Jack Lemon, which is essentially what I'm going to end up growing up. <laughs> I, I can already tell. So I mean, it'll be nice to finally get there.
0: Uh, you, know, you know, Jack Lemon always has his Tony Curtis running around too. So I have a feeling <laughs> it's not going to be it's not going to be a quiet retirement from you. I don't imagine.
1: No, well, true, very true. Although I sort of like. Once again, we're back to R two and three PO. Yeah. They're very. Uh, I don't know. They're very solid archetype, aren't they? Which, yeah. I- I guess sort of leads into what we're going to end up talking about uh, on today's bonus episode. In a way, it does. Yeah. And
0: um, I love the idea of, of you and George Lucas sitting on a couch somewhere just, you know, thumbing through, <laughs> thumbing through comic books and looking up and, oh, yeah, there's a Star Wars movie on. Why don't we check this out? <laughs> because this is kind of. What inspired the whole conversation essentially is this idea of George Lucas being able to watch things as a fan. That mm-hmm. that's the way he sort of presented things um, back at the at the outset when he sold Lucasfilm to Disney. And you and I and Mike Climo of yeah. the very notable Star Wars Ring Theory mm-hmm. have been having an exchange on Twitter because Lucas came out and gave his thoughts on The Force Awakens, but. I don't think we want to jump ahead of ourselves just yet. <laughs> um, that's what inspired our yeah. our connecting here. But we wanted to take this episode with you, lovely Star Wars Seven by Seven listeners, and everybody else joining in from all over the Star Wars universe, to talk about Lucas's history with The Force Awakens because it's really kind of interesting, and and I think Bobby has a really interesting take on it as well.
1: Mm.
0: And so we're going to go through the history of Lucas and the Force Awakens because I think it bears on on all of us as fans as you know as to what we're going to see and how we all enjoy it and how we all relate to these movies to the original trilogy and I think it also bears on how we relate to the prequels especially if you're an original trilogy fan who then you know had to deal with the prequels or if you're grumpy about the special editions for example or <laughs> things like that
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's absolutely no shortage of things that fans uh, choose to get hung up on with regards to Star Wars as opposed to um, just sort of accepting that it's there. And that's the sort of that's the sort of decision making that comes into play even with uh, George Lucas himself. Like you can choose to look at him as uh, the old uncle in the corner, the old cool uncle who's going to be making uh, weird movies in his garage till the end of time. Right. Or you can co- sort of look at him as the disapproving grandpa who's got his arms folded and he's standing at the edge of the kitchen watching the party in the living room and just sort of like they're, they're making too much noise. <laughs> you can sort of choose to put, you know, to put him into either of those roles. And I think for a large part of Star Wars fandom for a very uh, large amount of time that the fandom has, has existed, um, George Lucas isn't even so much a person. Uh, to them, as he is sort of a uh, a projection. I think when I was recently on a uh, Bruise and Blasters, I was I was a guest on their show, um, and I said there are a lot. There's a huge segment of the fandom that sort of looks at George Lucas le- less like George Lucas and more like one of those stone Zardoz heads <laughs> that floats around the landscape and makes proclamations. Uh, <laughs> And he, he's actually got way more of a sense of humor than that. Now, I mean, having to talk about Star Wars and having to be basically associated 100% with Star Wars and nothing but for most of your life, even though you do have other creative endeavors that you do pursue, it's got to sort of grind on you a little, and and maybe it does sort of suck a little bit of the color and the exuberance out of a person, maybe. But I've always thought that it it doesn't hurt to take George Lucas and the things he says not so much with a grain of salt but with the, with the knowledge that the man is at his core a very creative guy who looks at the world in a very unique way and is also a bit of a smart aleck mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, and, and that's sort of always been my view uh, with Lucas and I think like you're right the conversation that we had that sort of you said inspired I want to I say incited but okay. incited this episode
0: <laughs> yeah yeah that'll work
1: <laughs> um, that conversation was sort of like um uh, a demonstration of the uh the slightly different because I think you and I and Mike actually, all have a very similar way we look at the guy who created Star Wars, but they splinter off just enough. And the fan base has been so focused on, you know, getting in fights with itself over how each individual interprets Star Wars on their own that even the slightest splinters on a basically shared perception of a man can cause people to trip up or maybe see things in a in a in a bit of a, a darker or even lighter light. Those those sorts of deals. So did, did that make sense or have I rambled entirely too much already?
0: No, that's I think that makes perfect sense. Although I guess I, I must say that if you were not privy, you the listener were not privy to our our Twitter exchange, then maybe that puts you in the dark. So
1: <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah yeah.
0: Um let's you know what so why don't we just go ahead and and, and put it out there to begin with and say that Lucas said that um, he finally seen The Force Awakens, and when asked what he thought about it, he said that he thinks that the fans are going to like it, and that it's the kind of movie that they've been waiting for. He mm-hmm. did not actually say that he liked it, although in an interview with Kathleen Kennedy for the Hollywood Reporter, she said that he saw it and that he quote really liked it unquote. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's fair enough. And when Mike Clemo posted about uh, Lucas's own direct comments, he posted with a <laughs> gasp. I'm doing the sound effect because it was just he wrote gas or gulp or something like that. I think so he said I should, gulp. Yeah, I, I... gulp. The audible. <laughs> and that was, and you know, I chimed in and said that was essentially damning with faint praise from Lucas's behalf. Mm-hmm. And your response was to um, suggest that. Um, We were taking things, you know, possibly negatively out of something that sounded very positive, which I I absolutely agree. It's definitely very positive. Mm. And I think it just goes to the crux of what Lucas is after versus what the fans are after. And so I think one of the questions I want to ask you relates to something that Harrison Ford said recently in an interview. And I think his journey actually parallels Lucas's in a way, too, because Harrison was very to be identified solely with Star Wars and solely with Han Solo for a long time, but he seems to have come around in his elder statesman years. But Harrison just recently made a comment about saying that this is something for the fans and that this belongs to the fans, that Star Wars belongs to the fans. And I don't think Lucas thinks of it the same way. I don't think he thinks it belongs to the fans in the same way. But I'd love to know what your take is on that.
1: Um, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's probably that blank space in between where uh, you and Mike and I were sort of separated by it. like we were standing, It's a very small blank space. Like we could have just skipped over it. <laughs> I think that blank space in between is exactly uh, what what you're alluding to. Whereas he, he liked it a lot and he made sure when asked directly about it to say that you would like it a lot and that you as a fan have been waiting for something like this. And I think the blank space in between is Lucas saying, I never made these for anyone but myself. Right. Star, Star Wars, the Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And you may, and you maybe could possibly have an argument for, uh, Attack of the Clones being him trying to, uh, please outside eyes as opposed to his own first and foremost. Um, but for those four movies, like it's very hard to argue. And, and even, even if you want to look at the rest of his filmography, it's hard to argue that George Lucas didn't make movies for anyone else but George Lucas. That's all he's ever done. Right. So I, I, I know for a fact that that's where the the faint praise aspect was coming in because it wasn't – at no point are you ever going to get him to say, this is the movie I would have made because we know for a fact this is not the movie he would have made. Um, and then the question I think sort of becomes – and this is where I came in like, I don't know, it sounds – sounds like a good time to me like he Mm -hmm. liked it and he said i'm gonna like it so i might like it um where where i come in is that um it becomes sort of a, a value proposition a balance like is it worth more to you that the movie is good and people think it's going to be good on a very universal level or is it worth more to you that lucas got to do what he wanted to do in the way he wanted to do it. And it ends up sort of becoming a larger philosophical argument between um, the expression of the uh, artist via his art as purely as possible versus having a good time with the story, uh, regardless who it is that made it or how it is that it came together. And you sort of have to balance those two things. It's never always just one or the other. It's always kind of a balance in storytelling between you know, the amount of compromises the artist needed to make and whether those compromises ended up making the art better or whether it ended up cutting the kneecaps off of what the artist was even trying to do in the first place. But there's always a bit of a balance there. And it's sort of I think when you hear those sorts of quotes from George Lucas, I think your initial reactions uh, have a lot to do with where you place your value and how much you you value the artist being able to make his art the way he wants to make it versus the art itself being, uh, uh, you know, a very entertaining bit of expression, regardless of how many people pitched in to make that expression, you know?
0: Right. And I think that I think that's a very astute way of summing it up mm-hmm. without question. And it definitely brings out in me sort of the heart of where my appreciation for Lucas lies. And it's... It's really interesting to me that the people who you know say that um, the Emperor Strikes Back is their favorite movie, you know mm-hmm. they 're flagging a movie that was not directed by Lucas that has yes. a story by Lucas, and of course, usually it's a new hope that comes in second, which is all of him, but mm-hmm. as you mentioned, um, basically creative limitation uh, comes into play tremendously when you look at a new hope, and those ideas of collaboration creative limitation I think were truly instrumental to Lucas' success. And I very strongly believe that, you know, I mean, the prequels, I definitely do not like as much as I like the originals. I don't hate them like a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do feel like um, Tim McMahon from the expanded fandom verse is often referred to as a missed opportunity. And I think that sums it up pretty well for the way I think about it, where I just, I feel like the stories that he had to tell were very dead on. Mm-hmm. And that the execution just didn't necessarily work for me. And so then, by extension, when we've talked about how Lucas is not, you know, getting the stories that he wanted to tell for this sequel trilogy, I'm actually a little bummed by that. Because yeah. I think he does have really interesting and amazing stories to tell. And if Mike Klima is right with his <laughs> ring theory and about how crazy these parallels are that he was creating with, um, with the prequels to the original trilogy... I think that we could have seen something really tremendously amazing if he had done the sequel trilogy himself.
1: But See, I, and and I agree with you there. But I think I think unfortunately for Mike and and the uh, astounding amount of work that he has put in to discovering all the different uh, echoes and references uh, built into the prequel trilogy, you know, resounding and echoing back off the original trilogy. I think. Um, it's it's kind of a missed opportunity that we aren't getting what lucas wanted for the sequel trilogy simply because i think the way he would have went about the sequel and i'm just completely pulling this out of my own keister. i don't really have any evidence of this just just outside of the way he's talked about it and the way other people have talked about collaborating with him uh before he sold you know the entire company and handed over his notes but i sort of got the sense that the Lucas that we've been hearing from for decades now about wanting to make more experimental films and uh, being a little bit more adventurous cinematically, I think he would have fit that into Star Wars. I mm-hmm. think the sequel trilogy would have ended up maybe breaking Ring Theory a little because he would have started to go out there. Like a lot of the prequel trilogy, it was absolutely landmark um, and absolutely uh, you know uh, future futuristic. In that it sort of developed an entire technological pipeline by which almost everybody makes movies now. Like the way movies got, get made was right, absolutely right. 100% changed by the prequels. And I think he would have taken that pipeline that he installed and the way that people make movies now. The, the way that he sort of showed people how to do it with the prequels. And I think he would have taken that and his more adventurous experimental side and blended the two while still keeping it Star Wars. And that would have been interesting and exciting. But it also would have been a little bit more challenging for Star Wars fans. Even more challenging than I think the prequels were. Like, it was hard for a lot of Star Wars fans to sort of wrap their heads around how differently the prequels felt as opposed to the original trilogy. And I think he would have done something tonally Uh, the same way like it would have felt maybe a little bit more like the original trilogy but it would have pushed the envelope as to what you recognize star wars being in a completely different way i'm i'm betting Uh,
0: i i would totally agree with you and way back when when we all knew that we were supposed to get nine movies before you know he got through the prequels and said no it's only six because he'd had enough of all of us complaining to him about the prequels (laughs) yeah he had said that 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 last trilogy that he was doing, the word he used to describe it was ethereal and mm-hmm. that's always one that I never was able to walk around holding the definition of ethereal of ethereal in my head. So yes. that would mean extremely delicate and light in a way that seems too perfect for this world. Mm-hmm. Which sounds like it would actually fit in very well with the way that you're thinking about how the sequel trilogy would have been if it was in Lucas's hands.
1: Yeah, like there was an early draft of Empire Strikes Back written by Lee Brackett, and everyone knows that almost nothing from that draft, in fact, I think flat out nothing from that draft actually got used uh, in the final version. Um, Lucas ended up writing another two or Two and a half, maybe even three drafts before handing it over to to Larry Kazden, and then Kazden you know took it to the hoop mm-hmm. uh but that first draft was full of a lot of really weird out there and ethereal imagery and storytelling mm-hmm. uh, and i i could see I could see him going back to that. I could see him you know mining a lot of those old notebooks, but instead of going back and looking at you know how he did things. In 74, 75, 76, I could see him going back to that era, you know, 78, 79, um, and seeing if he could bring that into the 21st century and, you know, make it a little bit more off kilter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I could see that happening. Um, but again, if he had gone through with it, if he decided, look, I'm not going to sell it to Disney, I'm going to go ahead and hand these over to other filmmakers. But my idea as to what the sequel trilogy is going to be is actually the idea that's going to get put on screen. I think it would have been ridiculously interesting, but it might have been it might have been challenging and maybe not as satisfying as what I'm fairly certain we're going to get with Kasdan and uh, Abrams and even a little bit of Arnt still in the mix. I think that's going to be a much more solid representation of what a lot of people classically recognize as Star Wars. Like, right. I'm fairly certain that's what we're going to get with episode seven. I, I'm betting that's the yardstick most people are going to measure it by. Like, is this, And that's the yardstick that uh, Larry Kasdan keeps bringing up. Mm-hmm. Like, he's done like three or four interviews on the writing of this film, and each time he brings up Star Wars and Empire. He yep. brings those two. Um, and the structure of the film seems to be a mix of those two with some Return of the Jedi thrown in there as well. It's sort of like they're trying to boil down the uh, original trilogy entire into a single film so all the emotions uh, all the all the you know the speed the the way the the camera moves the way the story pushes forward like they're trying to squeeze and condense the entirety of the original trilogy in as pure a form as possible into one movie that's what that feels like and that's a lot more traditional uh, and a lot more easy to wrap your head around than whatever thing George Lucas would have tried to push the envelope with. Because he's never made a movie where he wasn't trying to do something that someone told him you couldn't do. Right. THX 1138, like, you shouldn't have been able to do. Not even in 1971 when, you know, Hollywood had turned the keys over to a bunch of young directors because they had no idea what was still cool anymore. They're like, all right, you film school kids. Go ahead and make what you want, whatever. Right. he, He shouldn't have been able to make THX 1138. Um, and then he goes and he makes American Graffiti, which was really revolutionary. Like we don't think of it now, but like what we sort of conceive as the teen movie, he just sort of made up on the spot. The way <laughs> you know the the pop music soundtrack, the way the camera moved, uh, the way it was edited, like he just sort of came up with it um and then star wars absolutely should not have worked no one was supposed to be able to do what he was doing everyone knows that they invented an entire camera system uh special effects was uh beyond what anyone thought was even conceivable must let achievable um and so every time he's made a movie he's done something and done it in a big way that people thought there was no way you're supposed to be able to do and i i think he would have done that again on the sequel trilogy um but that's that's risky that is risky in a way that I'm not sure uh you know Disney, who had just bought Lucasfilm, or even Kathleen Kennedy, who had just been appointed president of Lucasfilm, was altogether keen on pursuing like ri- risky is one thing when you are the genius multi billionaire mm-hmm. of your own company. Risky is a little bit. It's a little bit harder to wrap your arms around like that hug we had at the beginning of the show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit harder to wrap your arms around uh, when you your entire aim is really to please as many people as possible. I mean, And that, sh- that probably should be the aim with something like Star Wars, which came into existence being, you know, for everyone. And since it's existed, hasn't really stopped being for everyone. And it should be for everyone. Anyone 8 years old to 80 years old should be able to walk into a Star Wars movie, not knowing anything about Star Wars and walk out not only understanding what happened but enjoying the hell out of themselves in a fairly uh, fresh feeling uh and invigorating way. I sorry I just described it like they got a shower. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like it was a hot shower. Like they're coming out of the theater zestfully clean. But but you know what I meant, right? I do.
0: Yeah. It's the Irish spring of movies. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, well, since we've kind of been nibbling around the edges about this, let's, for the listener that isn't familiar with the whole saga, as it were, mm-hmm. of how The Force Awakens and the sequel trilogy came to be, this is, as I understand it, the history of it coming to fruition. And by all means, correct me, add, edit, addendumize, however you like, uh, <laughs> to chime in on it. Uh, but the story goes that Lucasfilm, or Lucas himself was... He was actually thinking about selling uh, to Disney in the first or at least I assume Disney was the main place that he wanted to go. I don't think I ever heard anything about him approaching other studios uh, yeah. to go oh, to it.
1: Yeah, from my understanding, uh, he pursued the sale and he sought out Bob Iger after I believe Bob Iger made like a, a joke or sort of a, a A premature sort of endeavor uh, during like a lunch meeting or something like that. They were having lunch and I think Iger sort of casually said something about, oh, if you ever want to sell it. Um, And then I think like it was like a a year later, less than a year later. I'm fuzzy on the timelines. I'm going off memory right now, but Mm -hmm. I do remember that there was an article and it was basically like Lucas decided he was going to sell and then he went straight to Iger like he didn't field any other offers, which got 20th Century Fox actually sort of upset. I believe (laughs) it. Yeah worked with you for six films you don't even swing by what the hell man mm-hmm. uh, but yeah he went straight to disney so that was that was him lucas initiated the sale like Iger brought it up but lucas was the one who was like all right it's it's time to do this let's get down and dirty nitty-gritty I, i'm going to sell you lucasfilm uh, film. For, right. for super cheap <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, four billion eh. yeah well i mean it does four billion sounds like a crazy amount of money but then i think like candy crush just sold for eight recently. really yeah
0: oh my word
1: some Candy Crush sold for twice Lucasfilm. No, so,
0: that's insanity.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt.
0: Yeah, when you put it like that, oh, man, that makes it sound like they got, you know, bargain basement prices for that. Oh, jeez,
1: Did they? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, but as part of his cogitating over the sale, he actually started working on treatments for the sequel trilogy because in his rationale, I think the article was in Bloomberg Businessweek, if I remember correctly. yeah. Um, he believed that he would be able to sell it and you know, probably sell it for more money also if he sold it with the ideas for the sequel trilogy in place so that way Disney had somewhere to go with it. Mm-hmm. And so he had hired Michael Arndt and he'd also hired Larry Kasdan at that time to help him uh, with treatments for the sequel trilogy itself. And then when the sale was completed, Michael Arndt stayed on and started working on the screenplay for the mm-hmm. movie.
1: Yeah, that, that is all correct. And actually, an added wrinkle um, that Kasdan sort of threw in. I'm loving Kasdan's interviews, by yeah. the way. For the, like, he just doesn't care. No, he, just, he does not. <laughs> and one of the details he brought up is that um, Lucas not only had sort of uh, an outline and plans for the sequel trilogy, but he had, I guess, rough outlines for some of the spinoffs, too.
0: Oh, really? I don't think I'd seen that. Okay. Yeah, like,
1: Kasdan essentially signed on initially, not to help develop the sequel trilogy, but he signed on because Lucas had him go up there and pick which one of the spin-off movies he wanted to write. So Kasdan is only in the room because he wants to make a young Han Solo movie.
0: Right, that I had heard about. Yeah. And I think but I've th- read different interviews with him where in one interview he says that he asked if he could also kind of hang around uh, mm-hmm. Episode 7 and consult on it. And another interviewer, he said they asked him to, yeah. you know, hang around and consult on it as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so either way, um, when the thing got sold, and I think it was only like two or three weeks or maybe three or four weeks, uh, Kasdan says it's only weeks, though. Right. Uh, after he jumps on and Arndt has already been there and started working on stuff, the the thing I heard is that he had sort of written up, um a big treatment like a 50 page treatment for the entire sequel trilogy based on the sort of outlines and the notes that lucas had provided and that's what got him the job to write episode seven mm-hmm. and so he sells it and then aren't uh comes along with the package like i'm going to develop seven and Kazden and i think even simon kinberg are, are helping already at that point right but they can't quite lock down what they want the screenplay to be so a lot of really good ideas are coming out, and some of those ideas are based on uh, Lucas's stuff. But I believe at that point, before Abrams comes on, Disney and Kathleen Kennedy have already decided to not go with that outline. So the outline that that aren't writes, or the work that aren't did via Lucas's notes, gets in the job, and then once the Disney sale is made, shortly afterward, Disney decides that, whatever you were working on, like you better find something cool to salvage from it. Cause we're not going in the direction he's going. We're going to use some of these ideas probably. And right. It turns out like a lot of those ideas, maybe not a lot, but those ideas did get used. But uh, yeah, at, at some point shortly after the sale, um, Lucas's notes while they came along with the sale, um, weren't really used past whatever Arndt had already sort of synthesized them into.
0: And there was, a Vanity Fair article, and I believe it was the June issue this year, where part of it talks about the the background of that story, and part of it also has stuff from Kathleen Kennedy where she says that the changes that they made were sort of just things that happen in the developmental process and that it wasn't anything major or extraordinary or anything like that, and there's unquoted sources saying that the treatments originally focused on teenagers and that was making disney uncomfortable because of the prequel trilogies and how it focused on anakin and padme at your younger ages and that disney wanted to age up so that way it would be more in line with where the original trilogy was
1: yeah yeah that was definitely that still has not been confirmed but i it seems like the idea of the the main characters in this movie you know Darth Vader's grandchildren is as Lucas kept saying like, what's up with the grandchildren JJ um that like, was
0: a uh, very credible impression there I like that <laughs> thank you
1: um it's, it's sort of like uh, it, it's grumpy Kermit essentially like <laughs> If you can do a passable Kermit the Frog, just sort of drop it down half an octave, and you've and you've basically got George Lucas. That's essentially what it is. Yay! I mean, it's not it's not too far. It's not a far hop. It's sort of like when you do uh, when you do uh, Jimmy Stewart. If you pitch it up just half half an octave, you've got Don Knotts.
0: Ooh, interesting. It's one of those.
1: Uh, what Jimmy Stewart? You kind of keep it down here, and and it's throaty. But if you if, uh, if if you want to make Jimmy Stewart sound crazy, all of a sudden you've got Don Knotts, and it's freaky out here. Oh my goodness! And nobody listening under the age of thirty has any idea what I'm doing right
0: now. <laughs> oh uh, goodness,
1: yes. And, so that was a weird little digression, but getting back to it, yes, I believe the uh, I believe those rumors. I do believe those rumors that um, one of the things Lucas might have done that that caused them to go oh, I don't know about going in this direction would be making the main characters you know Darth Vader's grandchildren like 13 and 14 as mm-hmm. opposed to making them you know 19 to 21 or maybe even 23 to 24 I don't think anyone knows how old Ray and Finn are in this film
0: I don't think so either although I think I have read things here and there that describe them as being in their early 20s but whether mm-hmm. that's actually credible Information, yeah. I'm not sure. but well,
1: and, and ages in Star Wars are hard to pin down too because Ben does not look as young as he's supposed to look in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Same with Anakin. When they get the mask off of him and, and Humpty Dumpty sort of gives that kind smile to Luke. <laughs> on the deck of the Death Star. Like, he's supposed to be a certain age, but he sure as hell does not look that age. So ages are sort of nebulous uh, in the Star Wars universe. So you know, if you can get him within a, a certain range, I'll roll with it. Like, Luke is supposed to be 19? Okay, could have could have been 17. 23, mm-hmm. I don't know. So, uh, But I'll, I'll, I'll roll with it.
0: Right. There was something I I have not dug into it, but something about... Somebody posted a story to the effect of how Leia should be two years older than Luke because of interstellar travel and whatnot, <laughs> comparatively, which I thought was really a fascinating idea.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if if Star Wars was even at all remotely concerned with the actual uh, application of physics in space and time and all that sort of stuff, then that would have been a cool thing. But I mean, this is also. This is also a universe where you, you basically race hot rods around black holes like it's nothing. So obviously, like you know, like a Death Star can fire and blow up a planet, and nothing happens to that Death Star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a Death Star blows up over Endor, and that and Endor doesn't get shoved out of orbit and set on fire immediately. You know, obviously, so, right. yeah. Just, we don't mess with the the really hard sci fi stuff here in Star Wars, but that would have been actually a pretty cool idea. So, and that's the other thing about Star Wars; it's flexible enough that. If you're slick enough with how you do it and you keep the story moving fast enough that nobody really thinks to question it, you could sneak in elements like that. You could. You yeah,
0: you could. And Kazden is certainly all about fast. I mean, mm-hmm. I've interviews where he talks about it moving like a son of a gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although that's not the language he uses, but we are family <laughs> friendly here. So, you know. Yes, yes. Yeah, I was gonna read. I was gonna read your bio, but um, I think I had to substitute Smart Alec for uh, you know. I think he said semi-professional Smart Alec. I had to change that a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did that myself too. I'm, I'm, try- <laughs> I'm trying to make sure that uh, I'm not harming any ears here on Star Wars Seven by Seven. I don't want. To be, I don't want to be the person that tracks mud in on the carpet. I'm trying to be nice here.
0: <laughs> You're doing wonderful so far. Thank you. <laughs> I have complete faith in you. <laughs> Alright, so, in that Vanity Fair piece they also talk about, and, you know, Kazdan again, you know, off the leash, I guess he and and Carrie Fisher (laughs) are the ones that we're going to get all the truth from. Mm -hmm. He talks about actually breaking the story and going from square one. I mean, that phrase is specifically used. And you know, that's the point at which I go, oh man, because there is a part of me that would have loved to see the story that Lucas had that that isn't there now. And I wonder how much has actually made it from the, from those original treatments into the new script. Yeah. Cause I get it. Like I get exactly what you're saying about how he makes the movies Lucas does for himself and is not thinking about the fans. And yet as much as we, get on his case and i'm saying we like i i guess comparatively don't get on his case nearly as much as some people do but
1: yeah, um, no, no doubt
0: <laughs> yeah i'll just take it collectively for the uh for the whole star wars fandom
1: mm-hmm.
0: but uh it's so it, it's so difficult to see that divergence and i think he's absolutely right in saying that this is the movie that fans are going to want to see and yet mm-hmm. I almost, I almost wish that I wasn't see, I wasn't about to see the movie that fans want to see. I'm super excited about it, and, and my, and my excitement is not affected one way or the other by his comments about it. In fact, I think it's probably heightened. Basically, <laughs> I, I'm glad that he's shown an awareness of what fans want, and that he's able to recognize that that's something that we're going to enjoy and be able to evaluate it in that way. But I also know that just like you had talked about at the top, like you're getting out of podcasting land and you're going to be able to sit back and enjoy things without having to create content around it or feel that um, physically invested in it, as it were. And I'd love it if he could do the same thing. But he started off this year in January in the in the press stuff that he was doing for Strange Magic there was an interview and you know it didn't get a lot of press at the time i was really kind of surprised yeah but he did an interview and in, with cinema blend where he said that the movies that they're making disney being and jj abrams those are not my movies and yeah. it was comparatively out of nowhere i mean the guy asked him about star wars stuff in general and you know, how could you not, I guess. But at that moment, I thought, oh, my gosh, where are we now going? We are going into completely uncharted territory. Had you seen her come across that
1: interview? Oh, yeah. Well, because the, the sort of strange birth of The Force Awakens had been a particular point of interest for me um, over on Full of Sif, uh, partially because nobody knew why Arnt had gotten bounced. Um, And most of us knew that Arndt was sort of by proxy uh, Lucas's hand, Lucas's thumbprint. Um, And so when Art got bounced and then the movie got moved back, a lot of people were very worried as to what that could possibly mean for production, uh, for the quality of the story. Um, and, And a lot of people get needlessly nervous because they sort of... I think they've got a conception in their mind as to how movies get made. Mm -hmm. So the the idea that people are having fights on movies and that movies are getting pushed back because nobody's quite agreeing on how they need to go forward is automatically a bad thing. And that's absolutely not the case. Like on a lot of your favorite movies – People got angry. People yelled at each other. Uh, People almost came to blows. People swiped all the papers off of a desk and stormed out of a room. Like that sort of stuff. And it all ends up working uh, to the good in the end. And those fights actually need to happen for the creative process to continue forward. Um, Like in some instances, you hope they don't actually become fights and pleasant disagreements. Um, But yeah, I, I heard that. And it was definitely... It was definitely sort of eye-opening, but on the other hand, it was sort of like, well, of course, that makes sense because he, he sold the company. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and, and I keep coming back to that whenever people talk about um, you know, Lucas maybe not getting his due or George Lucas not having his say. And I was like, but he, he sold his say. Like, as soon as you sell the company, and he knew this going in. I don't think there's, – there's been sort of a, an attempt to cast Lucas as the, uh, the spurned lover. Although he was the one who initiated the divorce and he did it for for reasons he still agrees with and he still stands by. And that's Um, the
0: language he's using himself, actually, in interviews now.
1: Yeah, he's using the the divorce analogy and it's actually really funny (laughs) 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 when he describes it like the way he describes it. He comes to life in a way I haven't seen him do in quite a while and it it makes me crack up and he's um, he seems to be having a lot of fun with it, too um but uh, a lot of people sort of seem inclined to and maybe it's just from you know practice they're just used to jumping in front of bullets aimed at lucas you know um but they seem sort of inclined to sort of like well that sucks i mean he's got to feel real bad about the fact they're not using his stuff i'm like well maybe he was annoyed like back in 2013 but by the time 2015 rolls around i don't think it's bugging him all that much anymore like i and he knew what he was doing when he initiated this anyway. And then actually it turns out in an interview with J.J. Uh, Abrams that just got posted uh, today as we record this uh, over on aisle nine. Abrams shed a little bit of light on uh, what happened when Disney said we're not going to use the uh, the Lucas stuff and Arndt ended up getting bounced. Um, and it wasn't like acrimonious or anything. It was just Michael Arndt uh, is apparently a very meticulous screenwriter, which makes sense when you look at stuff that he's written, um, those are very, very well-constructed screenplays. Those are not things he can dash off in six months and have you know ready to shoot. Like He works on those things. Right. And I guess Arndt told Abrams, I need 18 months to finish this screenplay. And <laughs> Abrams, Abrams was like, I've got six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so at, at that point, uh, Arndt was dismissed, and Abrams and Kasdan met up. And Kasdan absolutely said the square one thing. He's like, I want to go back to square one. If we're, if I'm going to come in and I'm going to write a Star Wars movie with you, we're starting from square one. And then at that point, Abrams told him. And this is what I think is going to be reassuring to fans who want to make sure that some of Lucas's uh, artistic vision from 2012, 2013 is still going to eke its way into the script. Abrams told Kasdan okay, we'll start from square one, but I'm telling you right now there's a bunch of stuff from those aren 't ideas that we that we mind that is going to pop back up, and we 're going to have to figure out how to reincorporate it be- because there's too much good stuff in here for me to completely abandon one hundred percent and He was referring to stuff like uh like the stormtrooper abdicating his post and the young woman being at the center of the film like he he specifically cited those two instances now i don 't know what else from the aren 't story meetings ended up making its way in. But Abrams was actually the guy making sure to shepherd as many of those Michael Arndt slash George Lucas ideas into the new story as possible. So Kasdan was 100% voice of the new. You bring me something, I can synthesize it, and here are my ideas for what a new Star Wars movie would look like. And Abrams was like, I have my ideas for what a new Star Wars movie would look like, but some of these ideas that I came up with earlier with, with Arndt and Kinberg, I'm bringing these in and we got to figure out how to make them fit. So when Lucasfilm issued their statements after Lucas's, you know, they're not they're not making my movies. They didn't use any of my stuff. Um, Shrug. I don't know what you're asking me about Star Wars for. I'm trying to sell you strange magic (laughs) Um, (laughs) when when Lucasfilm was like, we're not quite sure what he's talking about. Like, we're still using his stuff as a blueprint, really. Um, they were not lying. Um, it's just the blueprints that ended up making it into the force awakens essentially, according to, to Abrams here got in because Abrams was like, we came up with too many good ideas. Some of them based off Lucas's stuff. Um, and there's no way I, I was going to discard them. So, so that's, that's kind of an answer. And it came in that, uh, that article, I think it was at io9, uh, today. I, that article at io9 actually sheds a lot of light on, previously unanswered questions regarding how the story uh came together and how you know kazdan and abram sort of broke the story so there's definitely some lucas influence in there but uh it doesn't seem to be like there's enough for him to get a story by credit
0: mm-hmm. okay but, but certainly Ar- enough for michael arndt to get one apparently yes
1: arndt is still getting a screenplay credit and i think that has something to do with the rules of the wga like if you if you begin a script mm-hmm. even if you don't actually turn in a completed draft, and from what I understand, he never actually did turn in a fully completed draft a draft never got finished on Arndt's watch, right um, Kasdan said something along those lines, but even if like you start it and a and an, enough of that survives more often than not the w g a is going to give you at least partial credit just for making sure you got the ball rolling like Abrams and Kasdan would have had to rewrite that to such a significant degree to make sure that Arndt did not get a credit. And it could just be that Abrams was like, we spent too much time in the trenches. And even though he couldn't get that script knocked out the time that I wanted him to, um, these ideas were too good. You know, it's sort of like how Lucas got Lee Brackett credited on empire strikes back, even though like not a word of what she wrote actually it mm-hmm. into the movie. It might be something along those lines. I am curious to see what, what credit Lucas gets. Cause it's not on the credit block on the poster and it's no, not,
0: it's not. Yeah. It's, that's shocking to me.
1: And it's not on the credit block in the uh, the trailers either, which tells me that if if it's not on either of those two things, he's probably not getting a story by credit. But he could get something like, you know, based on creator uh, characters created in Star Wars or based on Star Wars by George Lucas. I yeah. see that popping up, but I don't think he's going to get a story by credit. I don't think that's going to happen. But are got a credit, which I was mm-hmm. actually really happy to see when the poster dropped. That was one of the first things I noticed. I was like, yep. his name's still on it. Awesome! I was happy for that. I'm happy for that, dude.
0: Yeah, me too. And I think you, when you talked earlier about how you know things happen in Hollywood behind the scenes and what impression we all have about it, that it may be very different. First of all, yeah, I'm. I certainly hope that people are as passionate about the creative process as we hope them to be. And so, swiping mm-hmm. papers off desks and and slamming coffee cups down and all that stuff. Like, I hope that's happening. And. Uh the same thing happened with um with Rogue One in development now, where Gary Wood did the first draft of the screenplay and then was done after a year and there were a lot of people who were like, Oh no, he's getting kicked off of what's going on and that's you know, two in a row now where the first writer got kicked off and it was mm-hmm. just he was just moving on. He had done his his time getting a script ready to go, at least for a first draft, and then they and they said, All right, yeah, I'm off to do my other thing with Mark Millar and whatnot. Yeah. And now it's Chris Whiteson and and so forth. So yeah, it's a it's definitely a different kind of creative process than I think most people really even realize. And unfortunately, I think there are elements of the media that are willing to capitalize on our lack of understanding of the process and Mm -hmm. use it to create drama that might not necessarily actually be there.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people just sort of sort of shorthand, like if you see a credit block and you see written by, you just sort of assume that anything that has anything to do with the dialogue coming out of their mouths and the story that they're involved, involved in is 100% the product of that writer. And that's not how movies get made. That's absolutely not how no. movies get made. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are just sort of like, you know, you, you see it happen with people like uh, Damon Lindelof. Mm-hmm. That, that's, a, that's a writer who is known by name. And that doesn't happen very often with, uh, with screenwriters, honestly. Um, and a lot of people sort of feel like they can identify uh, a Lindelof story just based off, you know, what the people are doing in the story and how they're acting. And there's there's elements of truth to that. There are things that you can spot in an episode of The Leftovers, an episode of Lost in Prometheus that absolutely 100 percent you go. That seems like something Damon Lindelof would have come up with. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff in Prometheus, for example, that you could you know, go. That seems like something Lindelof came up with. And then you watch the behind the scenes and you realize that's 100% Ridley Scott, you know. And there's a lot of examples of like that in movie making. Like you can even go back to Star Wars. There's a lot of stuff that came out of a lot of the characters' mouths that George Lucas didn't actually write. Uh, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz wrote it, you know. Mm -hmm. And the way scenes played out was not how either Lucas or Hike and Katz wrote it. It was something that sort of came up on the set at the time in a collaboration between the actors and Lucas. And Empire Strikes Back is an even better example of that like Lucas very much had a strong input into that screenplay and a ton of the story beats of the Empire Strikes Back are 100% George Lucas and then the way they actually got interpreted on screen are you know 50 to 75% Irvin Kirshner and Harrison Ford right uh, on top of you know Peter Sushitsky who's lighting the thing um you know, not necessarily by Kirsch's, you know, orders like Sushitsky comes up with an idea on how to light it, runs it by Kirshner. Kirschner's like, that's a pretty damn good idea. Let's go ahead and do that. And then they go to set the shot up and then Harrison Ford's got an idea as to how his character needs to move through the scene. So he and Kirshner go off and do something. And it's still when you see that moment. If you're the kind of person who just sort of looks at the credit block and goes, OK you would give all of that to George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan. And it turns out like 15 other people are just as responsible for how that one moment of film played out, you know? So I think, I think there are a lot of uh, prejudices and, uh, and sort of biases that come into play when you look at a credit box and try to judge an entire movie off that. And it's just sort of a, an easy shorthand for a lot of people to sort of feel like they know what they're talking about when they get in conversations on the internet.
0: Right. And Harrison Ford, that just put me in mind of his very you know famous comments about uh, how he said to Lucas, "You can write this stuff, but you can't say it and uh...
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I mean some just because something has written by on it doesn't mean all the moments in that movie were actually written by that person, uh, yeah,
0: and so that brings up another thing too with Lucas's recent comments, uh where he talks about feeling like he would have wanted to be a dictator on the movie, or that that's kind of how he thinks about the movie-making process now, and that it wouldn't have worked to have him just partially involved in The Force Awakens and standing over somebody's shoulders, and he just says, you know, you're either the dictator or you're not the dictator. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't that for Empire and he wasn't that for Jedi. And yet those are two of the most beloved ones. And I don't get the idea that he was really a dictator in that sense on Star Wars, AKA a new hope as well. And yet he probably was much more the dictator with the prequel trilogy. So, I mean, first of all, do you agree, like, do you think he was much more the dictator than not in the prequels? And second of all, do you think that maybe that's another reason why there's this schism happening with, um, yeah. with Lucas versus the Star Wars films and, and the progression of the sequel trilogy?
1: See, I think when he uses the term dictator, I don't think he means so much uh, on, on the sort of granular decision-making uh, level that goes along with day-to-day filmmaking. I think he's speaking uh, – and this is, I think, one of the weird little disconnects with uh, original trilogy fans and the prequels when it, when it gets down to that. Not to say that there aren't, obviously, original trilogy fans who also love the prequels. But I think part of the the schism is that when Lucas started writing those movies, the, uh, the place he was in his life was vastly different than where he was when he was writing Star Wars and Empire and overseeing Jedi. Oh, yeah. He had been a CEO and almost nothing but a CEO for 25 years So he, whether he wanted to or not, he had gotten used to the idea of thinking of Lucasfilm as a business first that that did very creative things. But it was absolutely 100 percent a business. And I think when he mentions like being the dictator, he's talking about being the guy at the top that ultimately has to sign off on what people bring to him. So I don't think he was talking about it as in, you know, I'm going to micromanage every aspect of this. I think he was talking about it as in, I am at my most comfortable when I am running my film company and the product going through that film company is a product that I have personally signed off on. I have said, this is good. This is what I want to have the Lucasfilm logo on. Go for it. And I think that's what he means by dictator. And with the sale to Disney, he can't be that. He can't do that. So while the product could be absolutely great, and while it you know the the artistic decisions might not necessarily completely line up with his, he might still agree with them and think that they're fun to watch, I think what he's talking about is the idea that the buck doesn't stop with him, and that would freak him out, especially after like you know thirty years of knowing without a doubt that the buck does stop with him
0: right you
1: know i I think the the idea of being involved in filmmaking. And not having the final say, even if he didn't need to use it, but not having the final say, I think that gets his skin crawly a little bit. I think that makes him itchy. And mm. so and so it's a matter of I could be itchy and get in everyone's way and maybe complicate the filmmaking process. Or I could back off and trust in the fact that Kathleen Kennedy knows how to make a quality film. And it's going to be good. And I don't have to end up getting in fights and feeling weird uh and and feeling like i'm put in a place where i was you know where i was back in like 1971 1972 i don't have to feel like i'm in that place because it's been too long where i have been you know the god of lucasfilm i have been the zartable yeah yeah um you know and, and i think that's what he means by dictator i don't think it necessarily means i run roughshod over the production i think it just sort of means if i if i am not holding the rubber stamp then I need to not be in the sandbox. If I I may mix metaphors there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That works. I like it. But yeah, (laughs) but he, he wasn't, I guess the, and I guess I was looking at the dictator in terms of like thinking of the director's chair specifically. Mm -hmm. I I think that's where it kind of comes down to for me. Yeah. And his direction, I guess is not necessarily actor friendly in the sense that a lot of, the actors that have worked for him basically describe his direction as, all right, that was good. Do it faster, more intense.
1: Yeah, stand him up and shoot him. That was, that was basically his deal. Stand him up and shoot him. Get him in the frame the way you want them in the frame uh, and then go. <laughs> Which is kind of a, a Clint
0: Eastwoody kind of way of doing things in a way.
1: Yeah, but, but Eastwood is also... Eastwood will try and give you uh, a sense of what you're supposed to be doing in the scene um and sort of try and get you to tap into the emotionality of your character uh in a way that like you get the sense even though eastwood is like i want to make sure you're in the frame and i want it to go fast um but he definitely sort of tries to get you to to feel what you're supposed to be feeling and have a really solid sense of what it is you're supposed to be feeling before you get in front of that camera for the first time with with lucas uh from what i've read it's not so much that it's that you you kind of get up in there and he blocks you out um and then you know what marks you're supposed to hit and then you do it and it's only after you screwed it up the first time that you sort of get an idea of what it is he wants you to do and even then he might not actually tell you one of the famous stories from the making of star wars was mark hamill not having a real good grasp on what it was luke was supposed to be as a character um until just as a joke he was like i'm just gonna blow one of these takes i don't care i'm just gonna blow a take and see how it works he he tried to do a little bit of a George Lucas impersonation, <laughs> and Lucas said, "Cut, print, perfect. That's it. That's what I want from Luke Skywalker." And so it was sort of like, like George Lucas never actually told him, "Look, just just be me, basically. Just just act how I would act in the scene." <laughs> he didn't tell him that. It was something that that Hamill sort of had to intuit from Lucas being on the set and occupying the same space with him. Um, so yeah, that definitely does show a, a bit of a difference in, in directorial style. I, I, I do think that's a pretty decent sum up of uh, the two ways you could look at it. I was looking at his dictator comment from an executive standpoint. And you were looking at it from a director's standpoint, a directorial creative standpoint.
0: But I I do think that there is a, a lot of value in, in the way that you approach that too because I do feel like you you have a very important piece of the puzzle there with... Mm. You know, him having run the company and he is looking at it from a business standpoint and there, are, of course, all the, you know, famous, you know, stuff about him looking at the merchandising situation of Return of the Jedi and wanting to you know, capitalize on that. And, yeah. you know, that comes at it from a very business sort of mm-hmm. standpoint thing and not necessarily being comfortable with the level of improvisation that was happening. When the Empire Strikes Back and yeah. yeah, maybe he's just spent too much time in his ivory tower for all intents and purposes.
1: <laughs> yeah, like well he, he knows how he wants a thing to be. And mm-hmm. he wants to be able to say, Yes, do it that way. And that's part of why we end up getting excited when he is going to do a new project, because you know it's going to be unique and it's going to have his own uh you know personal vision attached to it and you're going to see something that you wouldn't see from any other filmmaker because he is his own executive and as that executive he's going to let George Lucas the filmmaker do whatever the hell he wants like a lot of people uh try to try to sort of frame the way the prequels were made as saying that George Lucas was surrounded by yes men and i don't think that's actually the case at all reading behind the scenes watching documentaries um a lot of people told george lucas no on quite a few things and gave him some pushback i don't know if that's a good idea i don't know if we should go that way and this is where being the dictator comes in handy because he can just say yeah but it's my money and i own the company and i'm also the director so guess what your no gets you Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it's not like he's gonna fire somebody like a lot of people sort of try and paint the picture that people were scared to say no to him because then george lucas would fire you and i don't think that's Ever what happened i think someone would go that's probably a bad idea george and george would go well it's okay thank you for your input um but i run lucasfilm and i think it's a good idea so i guess we're gonna go that way aren't we <laughs> <laughs> so i mean I, I i don't think it was a matter of uh, you know being surrounded by yes men i think it was just that you know he's the dictator he mm-hmm. is the guy who runs lucasfilm um and if ultimately if it comes down to it, he's he's going to make the final say. And that's a situation that he can't replicate with Disney owning Lucasfilm. That's not a situation he can replicate with Kathleen Kennedy actually steering the wheel. And would you want to be the person getting in a fight with Kathleen Kennedy over a movie? I, I wouldn't. No. I'm, fairly certain, I'm fairly certain George Lucas didn't want to be that person either. So, I mean, he's I think he made the right call. Like if you're going to sell the company like you've got to be willing to walk. And uh, maybe it maybe it hurt. Maybe it stung. I'm fairly certain it did sting um, at first in 2013. Like there's probably a good two or three month period where he was like, this is for the best. And the movies are probably going to be they're probably going to be the better for it. They're not what I would have made, but they're probably going to be their own things in very interesting ways uh, beyond what maybe I would have been capable of. But I need to walk and I can't go back to it again. Like I have to make the clean break, which is sort of why his interview with CBS with Charlie Rose seems so funny to me, because it's absolutely perfect for him to describe it as I can't drive by your house. Mm-hmm. I can't call you. <laughs> right. If you're in a room at the party, I got to sit way in the back in the corner and try not to make eye contact with you like that's funny to me. But you know, he's got to be over it in order to even make those jokes on national television, you know? So I don't think it's, I don't think there's anything, there's no ill will there. It's not acrimonious. I think it's a a perfectly lovely, wonderful divorce that he initiated, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. And maybe that's where some folks, I have not actually seen the Charlie Rose interview. I've only read the comments that related to it. So you definitely lose a lot of the communication cues by just reading the quotes from it. And yeah, it would make a lot more sense to think that he is just being, you know, very Woody about the whole thing and actually enjoying the situation to some degree, or at least well, finding some dark level of amusement for himself in it.
1: <laughs> oh, he's got a very, uh, he's got a very uh, sarcastic sense of humor. Like if you've seen THX 1138, that is, that is a dark comedy. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people sort of come away from it uh, a little bit confused on first viewing because they think it's supposed to be a super serious sci-fi film and it's basically just consumerist satire and it's 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 got a big mean streak in it but it's it's also very it's it's very sarcastic um it's very dark humored um and i think a lot of people just aren't used to thinking of george lucas being capable of that kind of dark humor like they for for a lot of people who only know of george lucas via star wars like their idea of dark humor is like uh r2d2 electrocuting somebody like zapping an ewok in the butt right like, Mm -hmm. it's their conception of dark humor when it comes to lucas but like thx 1138 is like that's a young man saying very interesting things about capitalism (laughs) in the way that only an angry young man from california could say it um and that guy is still inside george lucas even though he ran one of the biggest merchandising empires that pop culture has ever seen that that guy is still in there within lucas and it's, it's worth keeping in mind that um Dude likes to tell mean-spirited jokes every now and again. And, and dude likes, you know, poking fun at some of the darker sides of things. Like, he was going to make Apocalypse Now at one time.
0: Right, you know? that's right.
1: Yeah, he was. He and John Milius were going to go get some 16 millimeter cameras and go to Vietnam while the war was still on. And make their weird, trippy remake of Heart of Darkness. That was... That was the thing Lucas was capable of and is probably still capable of. And it's something that's, that's worth keeping in mind when you read those quotes and you, and you hear him talk about Star Wars. Like it's, it doesn't have to all be deathly serious uh, and very sour and stone-faced. Like The guy has a sense of humor. There's, there's blood pumping through those veins. Um, and uh, it probably isn't as serious to him as it can feel to some of us sometimes. And I think that's something to keep in mind.
0: So when you hear him make comments about how you know anything that he directs next will be something small and experimental and nobody will ever see it, does that disappoint you? I mean, do you think to yourself, <laughs> oh, please don't just direct something and then put it in a can someplace and not let us see it?
1: yeah the part that disappoints me is the idea that it won't get out somewhere like i want i've heard that he's actually made some of those already and it's just that nobody knows about it like the actors he gets and they're known actors the actors he gets are sort of on the hush hush and they don't say anything about it um and he doesn't screen it for anybody that isn't already his friend if if even that um and that's sort of like like, I'm a Prince fan, and the idea that there's, you know, months of music in a vault somewhere that Prince has never saw fit to let anybody listen to... Right. Kills me! <laughs> I, I know there is gold in them thar heels, and I am not going to be able to hear it. Um, It's the same thing with Lucas. But on the other hand, like, that's sort of tantalizing. I kind of like that. It's the same with you and the uh, the the treatments, I'm, and I'm the same way, too. That I'm hoping I I cannot wait for the JW Rinsler book about yes. the, the Force Awakens because I figured that's gotta be our best shot at clapping our eyes on some of those notes. Because we know we know Lucasfilm still has them. Oh like, yeah. They were part of the sale. So like our best hope at seeing what those notes looked like and what some of his ideas were are in that Rinsler book. And hopefully uh, it comes sooner rather than later because I'm just like you. I can't That stuff tantalizes me. Like if Lucas is making experimental films and hiding them in a fridge somewhere, like I kind of like that idea because that means like you know five ten years down the road it'll just sort of pop up one day and nobody'll know that it was ever coming and they'll just suddenly be there and you're like what the five six bonus George Lucas movies you know and it'll be like him running a a GoPro in slow motion like twelve thousand frames a second over the hood of a car (laughs) that will be it but I'll still be like this is what (laughs) and it'll be it'll be fun to watch it'll be cool so uh i i do hope that he is actually making those those films that he's been talking about making for god knows how long um i just i just hope i get to see them at some point
0: yeah yeah i mean good chance that we are going to outlive him so maybe it'll be something that gets released after he's gone where you know nobody like he won't be around to hear the criticism anymore
1: yeah yeah
0: as it were and yeah i think at this point I think Star Wars is going to be treated like how um, they talk about Abbey Road being treated mm. when the Beatles were recording it and all the engineers were telling them there is no cutting room floor. Like, you save everything. You save <laughs> every scrap of mistake or what... It doesn't matter. You save it. Yeah, I, I'm i sure it's exactly the case with Lucasfilm right now. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you. I hope that Rinsler gets his hands on... I mean, even the fact that we have access to you know Lay Brackett's original draft of the Empire Strikes Back. Like the fact that those artifacts exist and that we can still access them is just tremendously wonderful. And yeah, there are so many bizarre things in there. So I'm right. right with you. I hope we get that Rinsler book that has all mm. of that. I hope this I hope the drafts get released one you know, one way or another eventually.
1: Yeah, that that entire period from uh twenty twelve to uh twenty fourteen when they finally were like, Okay, we're about to start filming that whole period is endlessly fascinating to me. Like we still don't know uh, the half of what went on. And maybe we'll get something in a documentary on a Blu-ray uh, or maybe in a couple of years, there'll be a standalone documentary or something. And hopefully that Rinsler book will fill in uh, some of the, the backstory. But I think that whole two years is just, that's like candy to, to a nerd like me, like a film nerd, a behind the scenes guy who just loves hearing the stories of a whole army of people coming together solely to make a single piece of art that runs about two hours and 10 minutes and tells a complete story in and of itself. And just how many pieces have to fit in order for that to work as best as it can. Like that sort of stuff is fascinating to me. Um, And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see uh, what else comes out about that. Like I want that book. um, (laughs) I want interviews. I want all the behind the scenes documentaries because that just that is tantalizing to me. As much as I'm looking forward to the movie, and I'm very much looking forward to the movie.
0: Yeah. As much as I'm
1: looking forward to the soundtrack, as much as I'm looking forward to the making of art book, I want that Rinsler book, and I want a Blu-ray documentary, because I I want to have been a fly on the wall for the resurrection of Star Wars. That's nuts to me.
0: Yeah, that is that is the one place... Uh, you and I have the same the same take on it. The one place that I've said that I wished that I could be is walking along in Santa Monica with Abrams and Kasdan as they, as they broke the story. They yeah. said they, that was how they were doing it, through long walks through Santa Monica and London and Paris and whatnot. To be, you know, to be a fly on one of their shoulders during one of those or to be the guy with the camera or to even be having that conversation with them, I can't think of, you know, aside from being with my loving family, of course, uh, <laughs> I can't think of a place that I would have rather have been during those two years.
1: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt.
0: All right, well, I think we have tested the um, the limits of Star Wars 7x7 listeners who are used to seven-minute broadcasts, and we are over an hour <laughs>
1: now. I, I'm so sorry, you No, guys. you
0: do not have to apologize <laughs> at all. Um, I, I've had a wonderful time talking with you, and I certainly think and hope i i can't imagine why our listeners would not have enjoyed the heck out of this you've been a fantastic guest and i'm so grateful that you said yes to coming on like spur of the moment just right in the middle of that twitter you know incitement to riot
1: (laughs) (laughs) no that's that's the best way to do it with me just ask me to do something and before i have any time to think about it i'll typically say yes so (laughs) i was happy as hell that you asked me um, you were like, wait, wait, who's running the Twitter account? I was like, it's it's Bobby, obviously, because he's the one who can't even fit 140 characters into 140 <laughs> characters. So obviously it's that guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you and me both. Again, like I think I wrote five <laughs> tweets to get one idea across.
1: Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, no, I was I was happy that you asked me and I'm uh, real happy that you had me on, uh, that you didn't back out, that you didn't get cold feet. <laughs> you didn't come to your senses like i shouldn't have that guy on that's oh, a bad please. call oh, please. so no thank you thank you very much for having me on uh this is this has been a real fun podcast uh and uh, again seven by seven listeners i'm i'm sorry it was, it was closer to 70 by 70 but yeah <laughs> it's, it's kind of how i do
0: All right, so for um, everybody listening who is not yet familiar with Full of Sith, um, will you please let everybody know how they can best get in touch with your awesome podcast?
1: Oh, well, uh, you can go to fullofsith.com, and that's uh, the plainest straight-ahead route. Um, Actually, if you go to uh, twitter.com slash fullofsith, there is a pinned tweet, and if you click on it, it will expand out into another 11 tweets underneath it in a uh, finely organized playlist. Um, and that is essentially what we're calling the Full of Sith Greatest Hits mixtape, mm. um, and that should basically be a decent Whitman sampler as to how Full of Sith works as a podcast. So you don't have to just pick one and and hope you land on a good one, or you know comb through the archives and and make yourself dizzy with the wide array of choices. Like there's ten episodes and what I'm calling bonus tracks. And that gives you a really good idea as to how full of Sith works. Like there's an interview with Freddie Prinze Jr. There's uh, an audio essay called last gasp. Um, There are, uh, you know, reviews of the comics in there. There's a discussion as to what it was. Darth Vader was actually thinking when he, when he took Luke to see the emperor, uh, you know, sort of in-depth probings into motivations, little moments that make the star Wars uh, saga work the way they work, those sorts of things. So, I would suggest, even if you don't have Twitter, you can still see it. Uh, Go to twitter.com slash full of SIF, all one word, Um, and then sort of hop around that mixtape. And uh, if you like what you listen to there, just subscribe at that point. Go to iTunes and subscribe and uh, fill your ear with about an hour a week of Star Wars loveliness from uh, Brian Young and Amy Ratcliffe and Mike Pilot and uh, myself for a short time, (laughs) for a short time, a limited time only. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and that 's a fantastic idea about the pin tweet thing. I think I may have to borrow that i 've got five hundred and twenty four episodes actually five twenty four is going to drop tomorrow from when I record this, so it would probably help to create a uh, a mixed sampler at my <laughs> at my yeah. stage of the game for people
1: yeah no, no doubt so yeah, do that please
0: <laughs> and congratulations on on your wonderful tenure with Sith and the best of luck to you. In your next creative endeavor, whatever mm-hmm. that may happen to be,
1: yeah, Lord, I'll, I'll figure it out eventually, probably.
0: <laughs> but uh, as we were talking about at the top, or actually, I guess we were talking about this before we started recording—that uh, you are not going to be going away. That we will probably still be hearing you in podcast land and on Full of Sith um, from time to time.
1: Yeah, as- and and yeah, and other in other shows. And actually, uh, if you want, if you want to get risky, uh, you can try and have me back on, it we'll see if we can actually fit a show into seven minutes. I- <laughs> <laughs> I, I can do it. I can't. People don't think I can do it. I can. I can do it. I, I guarantee you, I can do it. So,
0: I know how to do it, actually, and I did it with Amy, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. During um celebration, where it's just I just ask you one question.
1: <laughs> I I don't know. I think maybe we should try and challenge ourselves. Like give it four or five months. Give us time to uh, to recharge and refresh, and then see if we can get through three questions and the trivia segment in seven minutes you and me i bet we
0: can do it i bet you're right i bet we can do it
1: <laughs> through heavy post-production editing i bet we can do it <laughs> <laughs> all right man well thank you thank you very much dude
0: absolutely and everybody listening thank you so much for tuning into this bonus episode of star wars 7x7 and we hope you've enjoyed it All right, and there you have it. And uh, thank you again, Bobby, for such a fun evening and a fun conversation. Even the time that we were talking before and after the recording was awesome. And Brainstormer Lonnie was not necessarily eavesdropping in on the conversation, but was hearing lots of laughter and fun and commented upon that after the fact. And, yeah, hey, anytime you can have fun talking about Star Wars, that's a pretty darn good day, I would say. And, yeah, I don't know when it's not fun talking about Star Wars, but... (laughs) I digress. We're going to have a quick break, and then I've got something to share with you afterward that you're probably going to want to hear. Hey, Rebel Rouser. If you've got a business that you need to get in front of a bunch of Star Wars fans, then I've got an idea for you. I'm looking for a sponsor to get the entire Star Wars 7x7 team over to London for Star Wars Celebration Europe next July. And we get a ton of exposure when we do Star Wars Celebration podcasts. Not just the regular episodes, but the bonus stuff, and all the in-person stuff too, not to mention all the live streaming video we do. So if that's something of interest to you, then reach out via the contact form at SW7x7.com and let's talk. Hey, welcome back. All right, here's what we've got to share with you. There was a comment from Bobby during the interview about an article on io9.com that talks about the development of the script of The Force Awakens and suggests that Lucas's ideas and Michael Arndt's ideas may not have been entirely lost. And so I wanted to share with you a couple of choice quotes. From that article, so that way you could get a better sense of what we were talking about. This happened during the big press conference junket panel discussion thing that happened with Mindy Kaling over the past weekend, and I'm going to read to you, if you don't mind, some selections from the article filed by German Lucier on io 9 here we go. Abrams confirmed that Star Wars creator George Lucas provided outlines for the films before Abrams came on board, but, quote, Disney had determined they wanted to go a different direction, unquote. That direction was developed over the next six to eight months, basically the better part of 2013. Abrams, Kasdan, Arndt, and others came up with a structure and lots of elements everyone loved, but Abrams said, quote, some things were still unsolved, unquote. At that point, they hit a bit of a bump. Arndt, whom Abrams describes as a, quote, precise gentleman, unquote, said he needed 18 months to finish the script. Abrams only had six, quote, despite my absolute burning desire to direct a script that Michael Arndt had written, I realized I didn't have that time. Kathy didn't have that time. Disney didn't have that time. And so I sat with Larry and I said, look, there are things about the story that I know are right and I believe we could actually answer the questions that we still need to be answered if we wrote this together, Kazan agreed, but because he was now coming on board with a different position, he decided he wanted to wipe the slate clean. Quote, for Larry's psyche, he wanted to sort of start fresh, as Abram says, and abandon the script they'd been working on with Art. Abram said, quote, and I said to him, look, we're going to start to reincorporate very quickly many things because I know I want this young woman to be at the center of this thing. I know I want this stormtrooper to abandon his post. There are just fundamental tenets of what we had come up with with our, that were going to stick. And so ends the reading. <laughs> now, all of that said, I don't know how much made it from the treatment into the movie based on that. I mean, Yeah, okay, maybe that's sort of an obvious statement. But what I mean to say is that it sounds like the order of events is that Disney decided to go in a different direction before Michael Arndt started working on a script. So it still remains a bit of a mystery, Charlie Brown. (laughs) And we still have a few choke points to consider. First of all, whether any of Lucas's ideas made it into Michael Arndt's script work. That's number one. Number two, whether... Any of those ideas that actually did end up in Arndt's script actually carried through into Kasdan and Abrams' script. And number three, whether there was anything from the treatments that Arndt hadn't used, but that Kasdan and Abrams, you know, I'm sure they were all privy to it, whether they rescued some of those things and got them integrated into their final script. The one thing that we know for sure is that they are not quote-unquote Lucas's movies. And how you feel about that all depends on your point of view. Thanks for joining us for this bonus extended episode of Star Wars 7x7. And we'll catch you on the next regular episode, 526, drops tomorrow. Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. before your scopes go dead and you start the landing cycle, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And we'd be spectacularly grateful if you put a little something in the tip jar at patreon.com SW7x7. It's not a slimy mud hole, it's destiny unleashed.